In his book entitled Prayer, Richard Foster identifies 21 different types of prayer. One particular type of prayer he labels the prayer of tears. He describes that type of prayer with these words. It is the intimate and ultimate awareness that our sin cuts us off from the fullness of God's presence. Today we continue our sermon series entitled I Pray. We find ourselves in the Old Testament book of Daniel. I want to submit to you this morning that Daniel prays a prayer of tears. I know that traditionally it is our custom for us to stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. That's always appropriate. Yet on this morning, it may be even more appropriate for us to kneel before the Lord as we hear these words. So today, if you are physically able, I invite you to join me as we kneel before the Lord. Maybe some of you just want to get into the aisle and fall face down to the Lord. But regardless, we bow before him symbolically and physically as together we read this very penitent passage of Scripture. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God. I pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, and all of Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings and princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we've sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, 
And who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned. We have done wrong, O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts. Turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear, open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that brings, that bears your name. We do not make request of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. Now say to your neighbor, neighbor, help me get back to my seat. <laughs> Our passage begins with the statement that it was the first year of King Darius. This is a historical mile marker that not only tells us that this is somewhere around 538 BC, but it also speaks to the political climate of the day of Daniel. Everything is in disarray. Questions are swirling. Politics are turned upside down. You may recall that about 68 years prior to this passage, Daniel and three of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken from the southern kingdom of Judah and placed in Babylonian captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. Those barbaric Babylonians, they attacked the southern kingdom of Judah with wave upon wave. Every time once they attacked, they would retreat by kidnapping and confiscating some of the best and brightest that Judah had to offer. Thousands upon thousands of the Jews were no longer living in the land of Judah, but they were subject as servants and slaves in captivity in Babylon. It was 68 years prior that Daniel left. For most of his life, he lived in captivity. You may recall in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 that Daniel was resolved not to defile himself before the Lord. That word resolve means that he set it upon his heart. He set it upon his heart that he would not defile himself before the Lord. Think about that statement. Daniel is one who has only been raised in the southern kingdom of Judah and now everything is turned upside down, inside out, and topsy-turvy. Now he's living in a pagan land with a pagan king, with pagan practices. And he declares, I have set it upon my heart not to defile myself before the Lord. I take that to mean that he made the commitment that long before temptation ever came at him, he was resolved to be obedient to God. You may be able to take the man of God out of the land of God, but you can't take the God of the land out of the man of God. Daniel was resolved whether he lived in the southern kingdom of Judah or that foreign territory of Babylon. He was resolved that he was not going to defile the name of the Lord. Now, the way he did that in practical ways 
is that he was not going to eat that unkosher food of those barbaric Babylonians. They liked their steaks rare. He wasn't going to eat that food. And so he said to his supervisor, just give me and my friend Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. The supervisor said, the king will have my head if I do that for you. You'll get so scrawny and malnourished, you'll waste away to nothing. I'm not going to do that. And Daniel said, put it to a 10-day test. And after a week and a half of only eating vegetables and drinking water, Daniel and his three friends looked in better shape, better nourished than all the other of the Jewish captives who had been eating from the king's table. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that a diet of vegetables and water is better than red meat? Maybe, maybe not. But this much I know is true. It means that God honors those who honor him. And Daniel was resolved. He had set it upon his heart not to defile himself before the Lord. He is a teenager who's making this declaration. And I think that he teaches us something, something very valuable that you and I would do well if we today would set it upon our hearts that we will not defile ourselves before the Lord. So teenager, before you get in the backseat of the car on a Friday night and the windows get fogged, don't wait until then for you to decide how far is too far. By then, it's too late. Today, set it upon your heart that you will not defile yourself before the Lord. Husband, wife, don't wait for that, for that awkward glance from someone other than your spouse or that really awkward hug or that weird pause in a conversation with somebody other than your spouse for then you to then decide the sacred depths of your marriage vows. By then... It's probably too late today. Set it upon your heart that you will not defile yourself before the Lord. Don't wait for the prospect of gossip to cross your lips. Don't wait for the opportunity to slander someone, to advance your own personal cause. Don't wait until that pornographic site is just one click away. Don't wait until the opportunity to steal something from a neighbor or a boss, something that you just want for your own personal pleasure. Don't wait for those moments of temptation to come at you for you to then decide how you're going to handle yourself in those moments. Because if you wait... It's probably too late today. Set it upon your hearts that you will not defile yourself before the Lord. That's what the teenage Daniel did. He set it upon his heart. He was resolved that even though he lived in a foreign land with foreign kings and foreign gods, he was still going to serve the one true God, Yahweh himself. By the time you and I get to our passage of Daniel chapter 9, the prophet is now drawing social security. He's north of 80 years of age. He's coming to, towards the end of his life. And he's there, still in captivity. But now there's a new bully on the political playground. It's no longer the Babylonians. Now it's the Medes. Ultimately, it'll be the Persians. And now there's a new sheriff in town. His name is King Darius. And now there's a lot of questions that are swirling. What's going to happen? What, what, what is he going to do to us Jews? How's it going to go for us? Is he going to be favorably disposed towards us? Or is he going to be overly oppressive towards us? We've been here a mighty long time. We don't know how long we're going to be here. And so we don't know what it's going to be like. What's going to happen? And with all of these questions, 
you find the man of God reading the word of God. Something very powerful in that, my friends. That at the end of life, this one who started out so well, Daniel, who started out so well as a teenager to say, I've set it up on my heart not to defile myself before the Lord. He started out so well, and here he comes at the end of life, and he's just as resolved. He's still seeking answers from the Lord and from God's word. 2,500 years have passed, but not a whole lot has changed. We still live in a world of swirling questions, don't we? Political upheaval? Has there ever been a moment in American history when there's any less political upheaval, any more political upheaval than it is right now? Who do you trust? This politician or that politician? This allegation or that allegation? Who can you trust? Do you trust government? Do you trust the oil company? Do you trust the big banks? I mean, who can you depend upon? Wall Street or the private sector? I mean, what is going on? And 2,500 years have passed. Not a whole lot has changed. There are still swirling questions that surround all of us. Now, we are not captive like Daniel was captive, but still, there are a lot of things that we don't know our future. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. And what do we see the man of God doing? In Daniel chapter 9, he re- he's still reading the word of God. He said, I read from the prophet Jeremiah, and I learned that the desolation of Jerusalem will last some 70 years. Now, Daniel can do his math. He realizes he's been there for nearly 70 years already. And and, and Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king. The Babylonians are no longer in charge. Now it's the Medes and the Persians. And now he wonders, is God still going to make good on his promise? Apparently, Daniel was somewhere in Jeremiah chapter 25. He must have come across these words. Jeremiah 25, verse 7. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. You have provoked me with what your hands have made and you have brought harm to yourselves therefore the Lord Almighty says this because you've not listened to my words I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon declares the Lord I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin I will banish From them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Everything that Jeremiah foretold came true because wave upon wave of of attacks by the uh, Babylonian Empire and ultimately in 586 BC, the temple in Jerusalem was totally destroyed. Everything was in shambles. And Daniel says, you know, we're going to be in this captivity for a few more years. And the reason we're here is because of our sin. We have no one to blame but ourselves. It is because we have crafted idols. It's because we have followed our own way. It's because we have become arrogant and sinful. We are here and we have no one to blame but ourselves. We cannot blame God. It's not that God has a vendetta against us as the southern kingdom of Judah. It's not that that somehow uh, we don't deserve this because we do deserve this because we are sinful to the core and it is because of our disobedience that we're here. So in response, Daniel pleads with the Lord and prays. He sits in sackcloth and ashes. His clothing mirrors his confession. 
He changes his position and his posture. He bows as low as he possibly can before the Lord. You know, posture leads to perspective. And this is what Daniel is doing. He changes his position. He changes his posture. And it gives him a greater perspective of his own personal sin and the sin of the community and the country. Do any of you remember the movie Dead Poet Society? It's way back in 1989. The English professor of that all-boys private school was John Keating, played by the late Robin Williams. He was a great English teacher, encouraging his students to see things from new perspectives. And one day in class, he asked all the boys to stand up on top of their desk. Have you ever seen this room from that vantage point, he asked? Have you ever seen this room from that perspective? And all the boys had to say, no, we've never climbed on our desk. We're high school students. He said, okay, everybody, stand up. Let's climb on top of your desk. Let's see the room from this perspective. What new thing do you see? Because your posture, it it impacts your perspective. And this is what we see of Daniel. Daniel literally bows low before the Lord. He sits in sackcloth and ashes. And he pleads and he prays and he confesses a sin. He prays unto the Lord. How long has it been since you talked with the Lord and told him your heart's hidden secrets? How long since you prayed? How long since you stayed on your knees till the light shone through? How long has it been since your mind felt at ease? How long since your heart knew no burden? How long has it been Since you called him your friend, how long since you knew that he cared for you? My friends, how long has it been since you have literally fallen on your face before the Lord and say, God, please forgive me for my iniquity. Forgive me for my sin. How long has it been since you have given dedicated amount of time just to praying unto the Lord saying, Lord, I am a sinner and you're the Savior and I desperately need you like never before. How long has it been? There are three observations I want to quickly make from this prayer that I think that the way Daniel prays helps us as we pray. The first one is this, that this prayer is God-focused. This prayer is God-focused. You and I could call it theocentric. Theo meaning God. Centric meaning centered. It is God-centered. It's not anthrocentric. Anthropos, meaning man-centric, meaning centered. So it's not man-centered, it is God-centered. Yet how many times when we pray do we treat God as just like a medical grocery list? Lord, we need you to take care of this problem, predicament, and procedure. We need you to handle this scenario, situation, and circumstance. Sometimes we approach God as if he is an ecclesiastical bellhop, that he exists to do our bidding and carry our baggage. Sometimes we just approach God in prayer and and really we, we regard him as nothing more than the great vending machine in the sky. That if we put in the proper coins of good works and decent deeds, that somehow he's obligated to give us the blessing of our choosing. But my friends, Daniel doesn't approach God in any of those ways. In fact, he says in verse four, you are great and awesome. In verse seven, he says, you are righteous. In verse nine, He says, you are merciful and you are forgiving. Our prayers always flop and fail when they're saturated with a bunch of I wants. 
And our prayers tend to soar to the heavens when they're stuffed with you are's. Have you ever noticed that? When you pray unto the Lord, just giving him the list of I wants, I want this, I want that, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. And we can even become sanctified when we say, I want you to do this for somebody else. But when our prayers are stuffed with I wants, they tend to flop and fail. But when our prayers are stuffed and saturated with you are's, oh, you are great, you are awesome, you are righteous, you are forgiving, you are merciful. Oh, they soar unto the heavens. And Daniel has the right perspective. This prayer is God-focused. I've told you before that everything we strive to do here, we strive to be God-focused, Christ-centered, and spirit-filled. Because we as a staff, we acknowledge That we can get together every Sunday because Sunday rolls around every seven days. And we can get together and we can put together a program. We can put together a worship service in our own power. And if we do that, guaranteed, it will flop and it will fail. Because everything we do, whether it's a worship service or a prayer or an activity or a ministry, everything that we engage ourselves in, it must be God-focused, Christ-centered, and Spirit-filled. If it's not, it's useless. It's pointless. Daniel prays with this new perspective and he acknowledges that this prayer is God-focused. But secondly, Daniel is open in his confession. In verses 5 and 6, he uses six verbs to describe his disobedience. Six verbs to describe not only his disobedience, but the disobedience of his country, of his own people, of his community, of his culture. He says we have sinned we have done wrong we are wicked we have rebelled we have turned away we have not listened to you all six of those verbs are powerful words and they communicate powerful action we have sinned yeah we understand that as to make mistakes to mess up in the new testament vernacular it means to miss the mark The New Testament author understood that in an archery competition, the way a a person could advance in the competition was to hit the bullseye three times in a row. And if that archer missed on any of those three attempts, then he was disqualified from the competition. The missing of the bullseye was called sin. It meant to miss the mark. And the biblical author said, yes, that's how we are. God's standard is perfection. And we may do things well the first time or the second time, but we're not perfect. And we constantly miss the mark, miss the standard of God's glory, and we sin. And that sin disqualifies us from entrance into the kingdom of God. Oh, but R.C. Sproul helps us to realize that sin is much more than just playing a game. Sin is not just a competition. R.C. Sproul says that sin... It's cosmic treason against God. Allow that to sink into your your mind, that, that sin is cosmic treason against God. Daniel says, we have sinned. We have done wrong. That word done wrong, it it literally uh, communicates to be legally guilty. We have done actions that have declared us guilty, legally guilty. We are wicked. That word wicked in the ancient Hebrew implies and communicates criminal activity. We're wicked before the Lord. 
Now, you may sit there and think to yourself, now, pastor, now, you're just being a Southern Baptist preacher. I mean, you're just, you know, talking about our sin and, and our, our, uh, our, our frailties and all of that. And, and I, I know that I've done things wrong, pastor, but I haven't done anything criminal. I haven't done anything illegal. Well, you may not have done anything illegal here in this world, but I promise you, all of us are criminals in the court of God. All of us have done things that are Guilty and illegal before the Lord. I've been told this story and I think it's accurate. I'll tell this story and if I'm wrong, some of you can come and correct me after this before I get to the next service. But I think that what I've been told is that the location of the, of the first church, of First Baptist Church Pelham, um, is now the site of the Pelham Jail. Is that about right? And I remember the first time I heard that story, I thought to myself, hey, things haven't changed all that much. There have been criminals on that plot of land for years. The only difference is those guys have gotten caught and we haven't. Right? I mean, criminals, guilty, as charged. And here Daniel says, we have sinned. We've done what is wrong. We are wicked. We have rebelled. That's defiant disobedience. To rebel is is to shake the fist in the face of God, to act as if you know better, defiant disobedience. It's one thing to disregard the word of God. It's another thing to know the word of God and then disobey it. We, when we rebel against the Lord, that's defiant disobedience. We've turned away, Daniel says. That word turn away is the opposite of repent. To repent is to turn towards the Lord, to turn away to, to, to act as if you're a better God than God is. I've been told a long time ago that a fool, a fool is someone who acts as if God doesn't exist. That's a fool. It's pretty foolish for us to turn away from the Lord. And Daniel says, we have not listened. We have not listened to the prophets. We have not listened to those men who stood up to say, thus saith the Lord. We have not listened to the law of Moses, we have not listened to uh, what you have given to us, O oh God. We have not listened to your word. Daniel says, we are covered with shame, not once but twice. He says on two occasions, we are covered in shame. And the one thing that Daniel acknowledges that the people of God need to do is as true today as it was then. In verse 13, he simply says, that we need to turn from our sin and give attention to your word. What's the remedy for this sin problem? The remedy is to turn from our sin, give attention to the word. Turn from sin, that means to repent. Give attention to the word, that means to recognize. In essence, what Daniel is saying is that you and I need some R&R. &R. I don't mean rest and relaxation. I mean that we need to repent and recognize. We need to turn from our sin. And we need to recognize that we are desperately dependent upon the Lord. What Daniel is, is asking is what the hymn writer will ask years later. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all of my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is what Daniel is pleading for, and he doesn't even realize it. He's asking 
for God to declare him and his people innocent in the sight of God. Oh Lord, we realize we are here because we're the ones to blame. We are here in captivity. We are here in our sin. We are shackled with our shame. We cannot blame you. We can only blame ourselves. But Lord, you allowed us to get in this mess and only you can get us out of this mess. So God, we need for you to be savior. And Daniel is honest in his confession. He doesn't blame anybody else. He uses six very powerful verbs to communicate his own iniquity and the transgressions of his people. And he's honest about that. You've met my father in the ministry, Robert Smith Jr. He told me years ago, he said, Davin, I'm having a problem because I go around and I preach and I can't find any sinners anymore. I can't find people who acknowledge their own sin before the Lord. Everybody's okay. Everybody's doing all right. They're doing fine. And I can't find any sinners anymore. We've gotten into the place in our culture that what was once wrong is now right. What was once raunchy is now respectable. What was once detestable is delightful. And Dr. Smith in tongue-in-cheek, but he asked the question, where, where are the sinners anymore? And when he asked that, and even today as I ask it, I am flooded with that reminder of what Paul says to Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I am the chief of all sinners. And once again, that's not just preacher talk, because I can stand before you today and say, I am the worst sinner that I know. Why? Because I know all of my sin. I don't know all of your sin. The only sin I know about you is the sin that you tell me about. And most of us are pretty good at not telling each other about our deep, dark secrets. And so I've got to confess to you, I am the worst sinner that I know. And Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Daniel would agree with that. Daniel would say that he was the worst sinner. And so he confesses his sin before the Lord. There's a third observation. Daniel just asked God for mercy. He says it in verse 18. I do not come to you based on my own righteousness. I come to you based on your great mercy. I'm not asking this of you because I am righteous. I am innocent. I know that Daniel is reading Jeremiah, but he just might also be reading Isaiah the prophet too. For Isaiah says that all of our good deeds are nothing more than filthy rags before the Lord. Even our best efforts of being good and clean is nothing more than a filthy rag before the Lord. And Daniel understands this. I'm not coming to you based on my own merits. I'm coming and asking your forgiveness based on your mercy. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the, answer, the question is asked, what is prayer? And the answer is given. That prayer is offering up our desires for the things agreeable to the will of God in Christ Jesus with confession of sin and thankful acknowledgement of his mercy. That's prayer. That's what prayer is. What is prayer? Prayer is offering up our desires unto the Lord. Those things which are agreeable to the will of God according to Christ Jesus. And all the while we have confession of sin 
and thankful acknowledgement for his mercy. Mercy is withholding the punishment and the judgment that is deserved. I, for one, thank God every day that he's merciful. I do not want a fair God. You know, sometimes people say, well, that's just not fair. God's not being fair with me. Brother, sister, you do not want God to be fair with you. You do not want God to give you what you deserve. You want God to be merciful. You want God to withhold the punishment that you deserve. And it's not that God can just sweep it under the carpet. He's got to deal with it somehow, some way. So he meted his judgment that should have gone to you upon the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ so that Jesus is your substitute. So I want a God, you want a God who is merciful. Oh God, do not be fair with me. Please be merciful. This is what Daniel's asking for. And he's always mindful and thankful. So he says, I do not come because of my own righteousness. I come because of your great mercy. Jesus one day told the story of two guys who were going to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The first was well-respected in the community. The second one was regarded as a crook by his own countrymen. The Pharisee, the religious guy, he stood in the middle of the sanctuary, according to the words of Jesus. He looked up to the heavens and he prayed It can be translated about himself, but even better translated to himself. He prayed to himself, Father, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, or even like that tax collector over there, for I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. God, let me just give you my resume and I'll turn around so you can go in and pat me on the back because I know that you're just indebted to me because I am a Pharisee and I'm in your kingdom. And Jesus said that the other, the crook, the criminal, The tax collector, he stood in the back corner, could not even lift his head to the heavens. And he beat his chest and offered a seven-word prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. Seven words. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't know if there's a more powerful seven-word prayer in all of Holy Scripture. Jesus said that that man went home justified before God, not the Pharisee. That would have shocked the crowd. The Pharisee is the one who's supposed to be justified, innocent, declared righteous in God's sight. Look at how he lives. Look at all that he does. Jesus says, no, no, no. It is the tax collector, the one who simply came and fell on the mercy of God. He's the one who went home justified. For he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Lord, have mercy on me. A sinner. Horatio Spafford is exactly right. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. This morning, I wonder if you pray a prayer of tears. It's the Intimate and ultimate awareness that your sin cuts you off from the fullness of God's presence. It's not that your sin is too big for the Lord because God can handle it. He can handle whatever you've done, whatever you've said. He can handle any numerous skeletons in your closet. He can handle it. But you and I have to come and in broken contrition, We bow before the Lord, not just physically, but also spiritually, symbolically. We bow before him with the intimate and ultimate awareness that is our sin 
that cuts us off from the fullness of God's presence. So this morning, church, the invitation is simple. I just invite you to come and pray. I just invite you to come and pray. Maybe, maybe it's the prayer of the tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Today can be the day of your salvation, friend. I plead with you to humbly bow before the Lord and acknowledge that you are a terrible God, but God is a great God. And this great God has died on the cross for your sins. And though he was buried, on the third day, he was raised back to life again. And I want to I plead with you to accept Jesus on his terms. But many of you are here, and many of you are already believers. And yet, believer, let me say to you, I encourage you this morning to come and to pray and let your prayer be God-focused. Be honest in your confession and plead for mercy. Because it's the beloved disciple who says and reminds us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim to have no sin, we make him out to be a liar and the truth is not in us. So this morning, if you're not a believer, I want to urge you to come and pray for the very first time, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you are a believer... I encourage you to come and to pray. Change your position and your posture. Yes, you can do that at your seat, but yes, you can kneel here. You can lie down face to the ground if you need to. We'll be here to pick you back up when you finally say amen. But you come. You come. And let's pray. And may the carpet be tear-stained. As Richard Foster says, the prayer of tears is that intimate and ultimate awareness that it is our sin that cuts us off from the fullness of God's presence. Oh God, please restore unto us the joy of your salvation. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation and Lord, we pray that your altar is full. And Lord, we do not look with judgmental eyes upon anybody who comes. and We just acknowledge that all of us are sinners saved by the grace of our Lord. And so, God, if you need to do some business with some of us in this hour, I pray that we will come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.